Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, host of Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you are listening to this podcast, you know how much I love exploring happiness, well-being, and positive lifestyles, and I love talking with you about it. We always want to deliver great content to our listeners, and the best way to do that is to learn more about you. Please help us help you by filling out a quick and anonymous survey. Please visit mylistenerstudy.com. Once again, that's www.mylistenerstudy.com, and tell us about yourself. We'll learn more about you, and you can have a chance to win a Chromecast. That's what I call a win-win situation. Visit mylistenerstudy.com and enter Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio to share your heart with us. Thanks. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week we ex- explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. We are talking about habits. What does it take to promote permanent and perpetual positive change? I like to call it emotional muscle tone or emotional fitness. I'm talking with Dr. Jason Selk, who was hired by the St. Louis Cardinals to be their first director of mental training in 2006. And in that very season, they went on to win their first World Series in 20 years. And then again in 2011. Using the successful mental training techniques he's developed, Jason now works with the world's finest athletes, coaches, entrepreneurs, and business leaders to help them outperform their competition. Dr. Salk is a regular contributor to ABC, CBS, ESPN, and NBC Radio and TV, and has been featured widely in the business and sports media. He's also the author of three best-selling books, 10-Minute Toughness, Executive Toughness, and Organize Tomorrow Today. Let's get tough with Dr. Jason Selk. Hey, Jason, thanks for joining us. Well, Lisa, thanks so much for having me. This is a great pleasure because I really believe that how we shift or improve our emotional well-being is not much different than how we would train for an athletic event, and you're proving that. Yeah, and I think you're right on in that what the science suggests, probably as you know, emotions, just like muscles, can be trained. The more we work on them, the stronger they get. So if we're trying to train happiness, we can actually put energy into it. If we have the right exercises, right things to focus on, happiness becomes easier for us. But what exactly is mental toughness? When someone comes to you and hires you to help them train for mental toughness, what are you specifically training them to do? So that's a question I've wrestled with for 20, 25 years. (laughs) Depending on the day, 
or the weak, there might be a different answer. But I think if I had to define mental toughness, I would say it's the mind's ability to stay focused on solutions, especially in the face of adversity. Another way you could say it, the mind's ability to stay positive, especially in negative circumstances. Mm -hmm. and, And again, one thing people I don't think realize so much is that focusing on the negative, focusing on problems, unfortunately, is completely normal. There's something called PCT, problem-centric thought. And unfortunately, it's a biological tendency that every one of us has. And it's the biological tendency to focus on the negative, to focus on problems. I'll give you a real quick example. So the most valuable resource known to our species is oxygen. Without it, we would die the fastest. But when is the last time you thought to yourself, as you're taking a breath, wow, this is wonderful. This is just a great life I have. I have an abundance <laughs> of oxygen. You know, again, your, your brain just doesn't do that. It, it totally overlooks it. It takes it for granted. But compare that with when's the last time you've thought to yourself, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough respect. I don't have enough you fill in the blank. See, that's PCT. Unfortunately, it's biological. It's ingrained in all of us. But the good news, we know neuroplasticity has proven that we can retrain our brains to be more positive than to have that PCT slant. Well, this brings to mind the the brain's negativity bias and how that might tie into our predisposition to go to the negative focus in service to a more primitive part of humanity, which is to survive. That's exactly right. You know, and, and back in the day, PCT served us very well because it kept us alive on an hourly, daily basis. Well... These days, life's a whole lot more sustainable, a whole lot easier, if you will, in terms of survival. And so now that PCT tendency, it really, what it does is it's counterproductive for reaching higher and higher levels of success. So is part of the goal of mental toughness to dampen down the PCT response and improve uh, really the, the, the activity of the prefrontal cortex to stimulate it, you know, our, our, to stimulate our happy place or our emotionally fit place. That's exactly right. And, and I call it RSF, the relentless solution focus. So what I always, when I'm working with people and I say, okay, well, what are we, what are we going to do in terms of helping developmental toughness? But really in my mind, the main focus is let's learn to replace that PCT tendency, that problem centric thinking tendency with something called the relentless solution focus. I'll give you a quick definition of the relentless solution focus, or RSF. Within 60 seconds, replacing all negative thought with solution-focused thought. And it really goes to that concept of internal locus of control. It's really getting people to focus on what they can control, what they can do, about their circumstances. You know, again, it's totally normal to focus on the negative or what we don't have. It's also really normal for people to just stay focused on the negative, to get caught up in it and let it swirl and really put us into a bad place. But you don't have to do that. Once you recognize that you're focused on the negative, you really can do things to change your situation. And again, as simple as it sounds, it's abnormal thinking. It's something that people have to learn and have to really work on or train if they're going to become good at, in the face of adversity, actually focusing on what are the solutions. I like that you said it's abnormal, you know, telling people it's, it is not normal and normalizing, in fact, that we're not always in our happy place, we're not always our most resilient or hardy, and sometimes these external circumstances are going to deeply challenge us to stimulate this relentless solution focus, the RSF that you're speaking of. Absolutely, and, and that's the thing is, it's not just with some people. This PCT tendency is biologically ingrained in all people, so it is totally normal to focus on the negative. You know, I think a lot of people have 
come to believe that if they're negative or if they focus on problems, something's wrong with them, that they're broken. You know, it's one of the first things I think is important for people to realize. You're not broken if you focus on the negative. You're normal. But the goal isn't to be normal. The goal on this one is to become abnormal. Just, you know, again, highly successful people are abnormal. Extremely happy people are abnormal. That is the goal, and it can be learned. <laughs> I'm I'm smiling and I and I'm looking at a little icon of a superhero and I'm thinking to myself earlier the goal is to train for like you know superheroic uh, emotional fitness. Yeah, I I think that's a really nice analogy and the good the good, the good news on this is every one of us can be superheroes on this if we put the work into it. Indeed. Well, but I, I also like what you said about, you know, acknowledging that, that you, you are going to have to overcome. You are going to have to reprogram, rewire, train, and be willing to sustain. Here's, and here's the rub for so many people that, and you know this from the sports angle, that if you are going to train for greater mastery in, in any athletic for any athletic event or in any sport, you are going to need to be willing to sustain the discomfort that it takes to transition from just the regular guy or gal to the outlier level. And that's what you're talking about here. Yeah. And, you know, I call it naive or childlike thinking that people oftentimes assume they can get the results, whether it be make it to the major leagues be very successful in business, um, you know, be at your ideal weight. Oftentimes people believe they can get the results without doing the daily activities consistently. I think that's a big word there, consistently, that are required. You know, again, I, I just, it's childlike, naive thinking that you can get results without consistently doing the activities that cause the results. Childlike and magical. Right? Yeah. Like there, there is no unicorn that's going to turn you into Mr. or Mrs. Happy. That, that's exactly right. Now, <laughs> the, the good news is it doesn't require that much training. You know, there, there have been a couple of different exercises that I've identified. If, if you're a professional athlete, it's a three-minute and 40-second mental workout. If you're not a professional athlete, if it's really just more for us people in the business world, or even uh, just trying to be happy, healthy individuals, not professional athletes. It's a minute and 40 in terms of completing the mental workout. There's another exercise, having people answer four questions, and I, I ask people not to take more than three minutes per session working on answering those four questions. So if you just spend three minutes a day thinking about the answers to those four questions. Even if you don't even get perfection on the answers, it doesn't matter. Just spending the time thinking about the answers to those four questions, which I call the success log questions, it trains the brain to be more focused on that RSF tendency we're trying to promote with people. We are going to go to a break for a couple of minutes. And when we come back, I would love to have you share some of these questions and techniques, because these are really sprint-like exercises to help improve mental toughness. You are listening to my conversation with Dr. Jason Selk. To learn more about him and his work, you can go to enhancedperformanceinc.com. On Facebook, that page is Jason Selk. And on Twitter, the handle is Jason underscore Selk. And once again, the books are 10-Minute Toughness, Executive Toughness, and Organize Tomorrow Today. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Love to read? Looking to harvest your happiness? 
then look no further. Lisa Cypress Kamen is an author of three amazing books that will assist in taking your well-being and self-mastery to the next level. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life offers breakthrough strategies for creating your own personal happiness revolution. Perspectives on addiction, an integrated journey to wellness is an overview of the recovery process from a multi-stepped perspective and holistic approach of substance abuse and lifestyle management. Through her third book, Reintegration Strategies for Depression, Anxiety, Anger, Grief, and Post-Traumatic Stress, offers an own nonsense approach to dealing with post-combat civilian life reintegration issues for veterans and their families. You'll find these books online at Amazon.com and HarvestingHappiness.com. Mindful meditative moments are free and relaxing on-the-spot mini staycation journeys designed to calm the mind and soothe the body from the comfort of wherever you are. No reservations or travel required. Check out the playlists on HarvestingHappiness.com and Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes and SoundCloud. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? It's kind, it's free, it's legal, and we are talking about mental toughness you know, training for emotional fitness with Dr. Jason Selk, who is an author, a coach, a trainer, and he's applied this, his technology of relentless solution focus to train for greater, greater mental toughness. And he's done it with sports teams, including the St. Louis Cardinals. So Jason, before the break, you were talking about minutes, an investment of minutes in these short sprints to increase mental toughness. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so let's first talk about the questions in the success log. Again, there are four simple questions, and I don't even think you have to worry about all four of them. I'll give you the first one, and it's what I call the first fundamental of developing mental toughness. All right, so let me give you a little background on this one because I want people to understand the why before I tell you the how. Most of us have the perfectionist mentality. And what I mean by that is we have the tendency when we do something well, we just overlook it. We write it off as expectation. We think, well, I expect that of myself. And you don't give yourself any credit. No positive pats on the back, no nothing like that. However, when you come up less than perfect, that's where your mind really spends most of its time. You focus on the shortcomings. I also want to remember that what you focus on expands. It's expectancy theory. It's one of the foundation theories of all of psychology, whether it be sports psychology or performance psychology. So if you do what's normal with that perfectionist mentality, you're going to overlook all the good things you do, and you're going to focus on all the shortcomings, all the failures, all the mistakes. And again, you remember, whatever you focus on will expand. <laughs> so by doing, again, what's totally normal, you're going to create more negative in your life. All right, so here's the first fundamental of developing mental toughness, learning to overcome that perfectionist mentality and replace it with something called a performance mentality. The first thing you do is just take 60 seconds at most each day and write down three things you've done well. And I'm going to give you the qualifier, the definition for a done well. Because I, I've coached people long enough, you know, I'll be working with someone and say, are you answering your done wells? Are you recognizing those done wells? And they'll say, no. And I'll say, help me understand. What's, what's going on there? Well, I couldn't come up with anything I did well in the last 24 hours. That's a very common experience for people. And it's BS. It's not true. Well, and here's, here's where I want people to understand and be very clear on the definition. Anything that promotes personal or professional health, even by an inch, counts as a done well. Anything that promotes personal or professional health, even by an inch, counts as a done well. 
All right, now let me give you some examples because, again, I think this is something that people might hear the words, but it's difficult to internalize. Here, here's an example of a done well. I, I write down my done wells. My rule is I get to my office, and before I get to sit down in my chair, I have to write down on paper three things I've done well. Here are my three from the last 24 hours. Number one, I beat the alarm. Okay, so I'm a big believer. When the alarm goes off, don't hit the snooze. In fact, <laughs> I, I play a little game with myself that if the alarm goes off at 5, if I can get two feet flat on the floor by 5.01, I've won. Okay, well, well, today I had a double win. I actually had two feet on the floor at 4.58, so I beat the alarm. The alarm didn't even have a chance to try and wake me up. I woke it up. It's okay. <laughs> uh, great. Another, another done well. I skipped dessert last night. Oh, yes, that's done very well. Okay, another done well. I only had two cups of coffee this morning. Okay, and again, anything that promotes personal or professional health, even by an inch, counts. You don't have to cure cancer for it to qualify. So that'd be right there if there's one thing that I'd want people listening to this podcast to take it's that one thing, and I know it sounds overly simple, and you have a lot of people out there that might be thinking, well, that's, that sounds kind of soft. I, I, I don't think I need to do that. I, I'm going to challenge you. I've worked with a lot of people, and I've had this great fortune to work with some of the absolute most successful people, whether it be in the sports world or in the business world, walking the planet. And I'm telling you, this one thing can make a major, major difference in your overall performance. Again, do it, do it three times a week, four times a week. Heck, I'd take two times a week. Just take 60 seconds and write down on paper three things you did well in the previous 24 hours. And remember, you don't have to cure cancer for it to qualify as a done well. Love it. I'm, 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 I'm signed up for the done well list. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. This is great. Okay, so let me then let me give you the four questions for that success log that I talked about uh, just a few minutes ago. That's the first question of the four. What three things have I done well in the previous 24 hours? Second question, what's one thing I want to improve? I want to be clear. It doesn't say what are the five things I want to improve in the upcoming 24 hours. It doesn't say what's the one thing I want to perfect. It says what's the one thing I want to improve in the upcoming 24 hours. And again, any improvement whatsoever, even an inch of improvement, counts. Get away from that perfectionist mentality thinking that you have to get something improved to perfection or it's not worthy of your time. It's one of the biggest obstacles to improvement is people focus so much on perfection, they get discouraged and they end up not trying or improving at all. Just, just focus, and we know science is on our side on this one, focus on just one step, one inch of improvement and you'll be shocked over time how far you can actually go. Now, people might be out there trying to uh, get these questions down real fast. Don't worry about it. They're on my website. They're free. Again, if you go to jasonselk.com, jasonselk.com, and you look under any of the books that I've written, there's a page, and at the bottom of each of those pages, there are different versions of this success log. All right, so, so the first question, again, what's... What are the three things you, you've done well in the previous 24 hours? Second question, what's one thing you want to improve in the upcoming 24 hours? Third question, what's one thing you can do to help make the improvement? So it's really trying to break it down into the action step. What's the process of making that improvement? And then the fourth question, just a simple assessment reminding you, 1 to 10, how well have I done on RSF? that relentless solution focus. One to ten, how well have I done the previous 24 hours being positive? You just give yourself a simple one to ten score. We know that the mere act of assessment causes improvement. If you keep reminding yourself, if you keep asking yourself, how am I doing on this? It forces you to keep it more in the front of mind, i.e. you'll be more focused on it and it will be easier to improve. Very simple. I mean, you just took us through a very simple exercise that anybody can do. This is like the no excuses exercise to, to better emotional well-being. 
And that's exactly right. And I'll tell you, Lisa, those success logs, those are the exact questions I've used with the athletes and the business people I work with. They've been proven to help people win World Series, Super Bowls, Olympic gold medals, national championships, increase production significantly year over year. Probably more important to me than any of that stuff. You're just going to be a better person. You're going to be happier, healthier, more successful. Well, certainly more comfortable in our own skin when we're able to recognize these good things that go on. And, you know, going back to what you're saying about perfection, you know, we have this pursuit of something, the relentless pursuit of something that's impossible. It's just not not possible to be perfect. And the other thing, Lisa, it's not necessary. You know, again, I've, I've had this great fortune. I've worked with World Series, Super Bowls, National Champion, Olympic gold medals. They, they're the best in the world. At that year, in that competition, they earned the title best in the world. And I'm telling you, none of them, not one, has been perfect. Not even close, to be honest with you. But yeah. perfection is not necessary. You can be the best in the world and still be far from perfect. Well, and the perfectionism or state of athletic perfectionism or peak performance that these athletes are experiencing in that moment of winning whatever it is that, that, that they're winning is something that they have trained for. So it is the byproduct, the gift, or the result of tens of thousands of hours, or at least 10,000 hours, certainly, of repetitive practice. That's right. And, and again, to echo what we said in the beginning, if you want to be mentally tough, if you want to have your mind do abnormal things, you must train it to do so because it's abnormal. But the good news, again, mental toughness is abnormal, but it can be learned. This is really, really good stuff. And I urge our listeners to jump onto your website. You mentioned, um, I mentioned enhancedperformanceinc.com. You mentioned jasonself.com. So you've got two and the tips are available in both places. Yeah. You know, if you go to Enhanced Performance or Jason Selk, it's the same website. They just redirect to the same one. Jason Selk's probably just a little bit easier for people. Very, very convenient. We are almost out of time, but before you go, I want to just uh, bring up a question that comes to mind for the skeptics that might be listening here, because they may be saying, okay, Jason Selk, you're talking about peak athletes. I'm just Joe Smith, and I have been depressed for five years, and I can't do it. What do you tell them? Well, I I have a mental health license, and so still a major part of my practice is working with normal people. And just so you know, I'm one of those normal people. I'm not a professional athlete, and I certainly practice what I preach. I've got a stack right here sitting next to me at my desk of my success logs. There's 300. It's the one thing that sits out in my desk. And again, it's just that visual reminder. I don't get to sit down until I at least recognize my done wells. And if I end up answering the other couple of questions throughout the day, that's great. But for sure, on a daily basis, I'm going to force myself to recognize the Dunwells. I'll just tell you, the proof's in the pudding. Print off 30 of those success logs. Try it for a month. And you see if you feel better, if your mind is starting to do better things for you. I think you'll be surprised with the results. And I'll second that. To learn more, once again, please go to jasonselk.com and his latest book, let is organized tomorrow today and on top of which you've also got executive toughness and 10 minute toughness but organized tomorrow today can be found by jason selk once again the contact page is um on facebook is jason selk on twitter that handle is at jason underscore selk here come the tunes we'll be right back thank you dr jason selk for joining us Well, thanks, Lisa, for having me. I appreciate what you do. I'm sure you're making a major impact on people out there. Thank you, and so are you. I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work, and thanks for sharing it with us today. Once again, here come the tunes, and we'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. 
Remember what it feels like to receive a gift? We all know nothing gives happiness like a present, so you should unwrap yours at harvestinghappiness.com and sign up to receive your free ebook, Got Happiness Now, that offers simple, user-friendly ways to get greater happiness in your world each and every day. That's harvestinghappiness.com. Lisa Cypress Cayman has built an impressive global lifestyle management consulting company offering applied positive psychology, mindfulness, and integrated well-being coaching. Her services, including addiction and trauma recovery support, as well as life crisis triage, are available worldwide through phone, video, and on-site. In addition, Lisa delivers workshops, lectures, and trainings to corporations and institutions and is a frequent guest expert on many prominent radio and TV shows. Connect with us at Harvesting Happiness for more information. Harvesting Happiness for Heroes is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation offering innovative and integrated stigma-free combat recovery services to veterans and their loved ones with programming that focuses on the transformation of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth using scientifically proven positive psychology coaching tools and strategies that increase self-mastery, self-awareness, and self-esteem to help heal the invisible wounds of war. To make a tax-free charitable contribution or to learn more, please visit visit hh4heroes.org. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today, we are talking about productivity. We are talking about what creates good habits. How do we move and motivate ourselves um, to the next level, to the next place? So the theme, in short, is smarter, faster, better, and the power of habit. And coincidentally, my first guest is Charles Duhigg, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for the New York Times and author of The Power of Habit, and not so coincidentally, Smarter, Faster, Better as well. He is a winner of the National Academies of Sciences, National Journalism, and George Polk Awards, a graduate of Harvard Business School and Yale College. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and two children. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I apologize for coughing at exactly the time I was supposed to say say hello. No, but thanks for having me. It's perfect. It's authentic. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. No, no worries. This is this is the beauty of podcasting, right? Exactly. Exactly. We could be loose. We could choose to cut it out, or we could just keep talking because it's real. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, we are delighted to have you. So let's talk about team building principles. And you mentioned in your book that Google and Saturday Night Live succeeded by using some similar skills. That's exactly right. So so a couple of years ago, about five years ago, Google started a project where they were trying to figure out how to build the perfect team. And they had this hypothesis going in, and this project ended up taking about four years and millions of dollars. And their hypothesis initially was the best teams are ones where you put the right people together. So maybe, and this is what they wanted to test, maybe you need a combination of introverts and extroverts, or maybe you need a, um, you know, people who are friends away from the conference table so they all know each other pretty well. 
And for about two years, they looked at that. They, they studied all of the teams in Google. They, they ran all these complicated al- algorithms and, and analytics. And what they ended up figuring out is that who is on a team doesn't actually matter very much. As long as people have sort of basic competence, who is on a team matters much, much less than how a team interacts. And in particular, what are the group norms or the culture that emerges on that team? And as they started looking at the different norms of groups across Google, what they discovered is that there were some that mattered more than others. And in particular, there were behaviors that seemed to be critically important, which within the academic literature are known as establishing psychological safety. Psychological safety is like that feeling you have when you feel like you can take risks on a team, when you can, you can speak your mind and people won't hold it against you, when you can b- voice ideas and you can be critical of each other, but nobody's going to take that criticism away from the conference table and, and you know, turn it into a personal gripe. But then this raises the question, how do we actually build psychological safety? Because all of us would like to be on a team that has psychological safety, but how does it occur? And so Google started looking at, at some of the research that had been done, and what they found is that the research said that there's two things in particular that seem critical for establishing psychological safety. The first is what's known as equality in conversational turn-taking, or basically, does everyone on a team get a chance to speak up? And second of all is what's known as high social sensitivity, or or essentially ostentatious listening skills. Do people listen to each other in ways that they show that they're listening? Do they pick up on nonverbal cues? When someone looks like they're kind of you know, not so into an idea that's being discussed, does, does the group leader say, hey, John, I, know that you're, I notice that your arms are crossed and you don't really look into, this, into what we're talking about. Tell me what's going on inside your head. If you have those two things, if you have this, this, this culture where everyone feels like they can speak up, and where people are showing almost ostentatiously that they're listening to each other and sensitive to each other's thoughts and feelings, then you get psychological safety. And honestly, once you have psychological safety on a team, that team becomes much, much more effective, almost irregardless of who is on the team, as long as those people have basic competent skills. Fabulous. And Saturday Night Live also employs this method. That, well, that's exactly right. So what's interesting is when you think about it, it's interesting that Saturday Night Live is successful because there is so much about Saturday Night Live that should make that show fall apart, right? You've got a, <laughs> a, a crew full of comedians who are not known oftentimes for their um, happy people skills. You have all these writers. It's a, it's a live show that's put together in a week, and they do it week after week after week. You have a, a, a guest star who doesn't know any of these people who comes into this environment and has to sort of like suddenly start understanding what's going on. Saturday Night Live should be a disaster, but it's a huge success. And the reason why it's a huge success, if you talk to people who've worked on the show, is they'll tell you because of Lorne Michaels, the executive producer of Saturday Night Live. Because the way that Lorne Michaels runs these meetings is he does these things that create psychological safety. First of all, he forces everyone to speak up. If you're at that writer's table, you cannot get through a meeting without Lorne forcing you to talk about something. And second of all, Lorne almost ostentatiously demonstrates this listening behavior. He'll do things like, like stop a meeting halfway through and say, hey, you know, Jim, Jim, you look like you're kind of distracted. Like, like what's going on at home? Are you doing okay? Are you, are you in a fight with your wife? Is anything happening? Or, or Susan, you look like you're really, really excited about this idea that we're talking about. T- tell, me, tell me why you're excited. What makes you excited about it? He demonstrates this listening behavior that other people echo or mirror. And in doing so, he creates this environment of psychological safety that's incredibly powerful. You bring up something so important with the psychological safety because that is a huge catalyst for shift or lack of it sometimes. I mean, sometimes it can be the other way around, right? When we feel that we don't possess that, that psychological safety, whether it's in a professional atmosphere within our personal lives um, we were like, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of Dodge. How are we going to make this happen? I think that's exactly right. I think that having psychological safety is is critical to making a change because otherwise it's very hard to feel like we can take that risk, like we can expose ourselves that way. And so we need to we need to have a safety net, which is basically feeling like even if we 
if we try something and flop, that the people around us, that they won't hold it against us or blame us for it. It's really important. What about what we can learn from Marines and nursing home residents? There's a, here's a well, contrast that will definitely heighten awareness, right? Yeah, so, the, so one of the chapters in Smarter, Faster, Better looks at the science of self-motivation. And it basically asks this question of why are some people better at self-motivating than others? And, and what we've learned is that the parts of our neurology that are associated with self-motivation, they tend to be triggered when we feel like we're in control, when we feel like we're able to make choices that put us in charge of our own destiny. And so the Marines is a kind of interesting example because the Marines were trying to basically figure out how to teach recruits more self-control, more self-motivation. And this started about, uh, about 18 years ago. There was a, a new head of the Marines. Uh, the position is called the com- com- commandant, commandant, who came in named Charles Krulak. <laughs> commandant, right, named Charles Krulak. And Charles Krulak knew that he had to change how boot camp functioned. Because they were getting a whole, recru- a whole group of recruits who were, who were particularly bad at self-motivation. They, a lot of them had never belonged to sports teams. They really hadn't done much with their lives. They, they would get to, to, basic, to, to boot camp, and they would kind of just wash out in unusually large numbers or, or would be apathetic. And so they knew that they needed to change boot camp in order to, to spark a feeling of self-motivation. Now, Charles Krulak had actually looked at a lot of the research that had been done on self-motivation. And one of the things he had found was that Marines who tend to do best, who seem to have this like, ability to self-start and, and be really sort of go-getters, they tended to score high in what's known as an internal locus of control. And an internal locus of control is a concept in psychology of a spectrum where everyone falls somewhere on the spectrum from external locus of control to internal locus of control. If you have an external locus of control, you believe that you don't have much control over your destiny. You, you, we all know people like this, right? People who say, you know, I wanted to get a new job, but my boss is too mean to me, and I'm never lucky, and things never go my way, and so I didn't really try that hard. That's an external locus of control. An internal locus of control is people who believe that they can control their own destiny through the choices that they make. These are the types of people who say, you know, I... I'm going to, there's a mountain there, I'm going to go climb it. Like, I'm going to figure out a way to get to the top of that mountain because I'm in control of what happens to me. The Marines that, had the, that did best were ones with an internal locus of control. And so Krulak's goal was to change boot camp to teach recruits how to have this internal locus of control. We are going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about internal versus external locus of control with Charles Duhigg. The book is the new book is Smarter, Faster, Better. To learn more about Charles Duhigg and his work, please visit charlesduhigg.com. On Facebook, that page is Charles Duhigg. And on Twitter, the handle is at the letter C Duhigg. Here come the tunes. We will be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Lisa Cypress-Kamen author of Got Happiness Now, is also a prestigious TEDx presenter. Her talks, The Mysteries of Fear and the Inversion Theory of Joy, can be found online at TED.com and on the Harvesting Happiness YouTube channel. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. 
isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Check out the critically acclaimed documentary film, H-Factor, Where is Your Heart? An insightful visual journey from Lisa Cypress-Kamen, showing that every person possesses the means to be happy. Follow Lisa and her nine-year-old daughter, Kayla, as they travel the world on the hunt for the universal keys to human happiness. Their question? What makes you happy? Discover the origins of human happiness, where to find it, create it, and keep it. Find it in our shop at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and I'm talking with Charles Duhigg about his new book, Smarter faster, better. Prior to the break, we were talking about internal versus external locus of control and how that relates to our productivity, how it relates to our ability to work well with others and work well in the world. So Charles, let's talk a little bit about um, an inspiration that you had in terms of writing your latest book, Smarter, Better, Faster, about stretch and smart goals from GE and Israel's Yom Kippur War. This is interesting. This, this, this really interests me. Well, so this is one of the things that we know. So one of the chapters in Smarter, Faster, Better is about goal setting. Because one of the things that we know is that the most productive people, they tend to set goals a little bit differently from everyone else. And, and this can be evidenced in kind of how they write to-do lists, right? It, it, to give you an example, m- most people write to-do lists as just a list of tasks, sort of a, an external memory aid. Um, and in fact, when I used to write to-do lists, before I, I did this research, um, I, would, I would, you know, sometimes just write a bunch of things down. Sometimes at the top of my list, I would put my easiest tasks because it feels so good to cross them off at the end of the day. Sometimes <laughs> so fact, true. Many other people would do <laughs> I do this, that. Is, yeah, exactly. Sometimes actually I would write down things I had already done because it felt great to be able to check it off as soon as I sat down. Yeah. And, and when psychologists look at that, what they say is that's using a to-do list for mood repair, not for productivity. So the way that the most productive people use to-do lists is that at the top of the page, they tend to write a stretch goal, their biggest ambition for today or for this week or for this month. And then under that, they write down a specific plan, what's often referred to as a SMART goal because it's specific and it's measurable and it's achievable and realistic and there's a timeline, but a specific plan that takes that big stretch ambition, that big stretch goal, and breaks it into smaller pieces. Now, the reason why that's important is because by in doing that, people use their to-do list not as just a memory aid, but rather as a system that forces them to think about their priorities. Because when I look down at a to-do list, and this is what I do every day now, is I have a, a to-do list with my stretch goal at the top of it. When I look down at that list, I, it forces me to ask myself, is what I'm doing right now, does it line up with my biggest goal and aspiration? And if the answer is no, then that sort of suggests I should be doing something else. The truth is, it's so easy to fall into this, this reactive mindset, this trap where we're just crossing things off our list because it feels so good to get something accomplished, that we don't have time to stop and think, am I doing the most important thing? Am I doing things that actually make a difference in my life. And in many ways, that's the difference between being busy and being productive. It's very easy to be busy, and our brain loves being busy. But being productive is about finding ways to force a little bit more contemplation into our life. And usually we do that through some device, like a to-do list, or some type of you know, taking 10 minutes uh, during a commute and visualizing our day, trying to figure out what do I want to get done today? What's my biggest aspiration? These devices, which are known as contemplative devices, they're ways to force more thinking into our life. And in doing so, we end up being more productive. This is fascinating. And, I, and I'm writing notes as, just as fast as I can here. I mean, I'm, I'm going to definitely listen to this multiple times over. But 
one thing you said I really like, and that is the uh, the stretch goal. <clears throat> Excuse me, at the, at the starting the top of the list with something that may be a little bit of a reach. And then I'm assuming that what follows on that list are what one is willing to do to work towards that goal that day. Well, yeah, I think that's right. And, and more importantly, can you, can you craft that as a plan, right? Because the truth of the matter is that a stretch goal is great, but on its own, it can be a little overwhelming because we don't know where to start. By its very definition, a stretch goal is something that's, that's big. It's kind of scary. And so what we need to do is we need to break that into a plan. So not only what am I willing today to do today, but can I figure out how to make it tangible? And that, this is why SMART goals is a system for breaking yes. something big into, into a plan is because you say specifically, specifically, what do I want to get done this morning? How am I going to measure success? Is this achievable? Let me do a gut check to make sure that I can actually get this done. And, and how do I make it realistic? Well, do I need to like turn off my email for 90 minutes? Do I need to close my door so people don't bother me? And then what's the timeline for getting this specific goal done? So it's S-M-A-R-T. It's just an easy way to remember sort of all these things to think about. But the point is that you take this big ambition and you break it down into something that's actually tangible and real to get started on this morning. And once you've done that, once you've gone through that exercise, which only takes like a minute or two, you you know where to start, and starting is often the hardest part. Indeed, with one bite sometimes, you know, you just got to take a bite. One. That's exactly right. Um, talk about the Israel's Yom Kippur War and NGE and how, how they work together in, in what you've observed and what you actually do and how you implemented this in writing your own book. Well, so, um, so, the, so the, the Israel-Yom Kippur War, sort of the lesson there is that during the Yom Kippur, in the lead-up to the Yom Kippur War, um, there was a guy named Eli Zira who was the head of military intelligence. And although the, there were many warnings that Egypt and Syria were about to ta- attack Israel, Eli Zira, in this, in this desire to, to kind of not have to reopen old debates essentially was blind to all the warning signs that were around him. And as a result, Israel was completely unprepared for when the Yom Kippur attacks occurred. Um, but the lesson there is really about goals, right? Like about building systems to, to force us to ask, am I focused on the right thing? Am I, am I paying attention to the thing that matters most? Or am I in my quest to get something done, to feel accomplished, to, to, to feel pro- busy rather than actually being productive? Am I just sort of checking something off my list and saying, oh, we don't need to look, look at what Syria and Egypt are doing again, because we've already settled that question. We think they're not going to attack. Hmm. Um, and the way that I use this in my own life is, you know, I sort of write my to-do list this way. I have, I have a to-do list every day, and I write it every morning. Then I put my stretch goal at the top of my list, because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to push myself to think, is this my highest and best priority? Am I really spending my time working on the thing that's most important to me? Or am I simply chasing that feeling of being busy because it feels good, but it actually doesn't get the most important things done? I, I, I like what you've said here. And I, for me, I, I am a huge list maker and I tend to do it. I do mine at night because I want to dump my brain because I feel like if I get into bed without making the list that I'll start to ruminate on the list, which will take me away from catching the wave to sleep. So it's a self-defense method. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that, I think that offloading your memory into, in, into a piece of paper, it's really, really helpful. But then the question is how do you take that and make that something that helps you think a little bit deeper about what's most important. Well, therein lies that stretch goal at the top, you know, the, the need to add That's that exactly component. Right. And, and I do like that because it challenges us to take a step out of our comfort zone to add a little tiny bit of constructive stress because that's where the shift happens. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, it's really important. It's really important. People think, oh, I don't want stress. I don't want stress. No, we don't want aggravation, but we need stress. Yeah, and I think that, the, right, so, so I think the way that psychologists often talk about this is they talk about um, the, the tension, so you stress and distress, right, that, that there is oftentimes a tension that is very, very positive, 
And, and sometimes that becomes anxiety, and that's negative. But the anxiety oftentimes has to do with the fact that we can't predict the future, that, we're, that there's an unknown. So putting a stretch goal at the top of your to-do list, that can create a tension, right? Because it might be something that you don't know exactly how you're going to get to that goal. You, you don't know exactly what the path, the path, every step of the path looks like. But by writing it down and by working through at least what the first step looks like, where you're going to start, then that oftentimes re- re- removes the anxiety and you get the positive aspect of the tension. I get it. It makes perfect sense. And tension, I think, is the, is the operative word here. <clears throat> that by creating that little teeny bit of tension, you're going to have to tug one way or the other, right? I think that's right. That's exactly right. You can't stay the same. You cannot remain in homeostasis when there's tension. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and hopefully you have to think a little bit more. And do. Sometimes you have to turn off the thinking and start the doing. That's the other thing, you know, about human nature I've come to learn. Yes, I think that's exactly right. So tell us what inspired you to write Smarter, Faster, Better. The Power of Habit was the first book, and then you moved to Smarter, Faster, Better. What, What catalyzed you? What was the thought process? What did you want us to know? Well, I, I think that in many ways I was sort of um, confused by why I didn't feel more productive. You know, I, I, I had written The Power of Habit, which is about the science of habit formation, and, and it was doing fairly well. It was a lot of people were reading it, and I was really lucky in that respect. Um, and, and I was working on a series at the New York Times um, about Apple and about working conditions in Chinese factories and, and other issues around Apple that went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. And so, so co- in a career perspective, things were going really, really successfully. And, and it, was, it was a great time in theory. And I would come home and talk to my wife and I would say, you know, if this, if this is what success is like, then like sign me back up for failure. This is just like, this is awesome <laughs> because I would get home and I would have 150 emails to deal with that night. And I would have, you know, five things I had started working on earlier in the day and hadn't gotten done. And, and all the things that mattered to me the most were the things that were far, falling farther and farther behind on my, on my list of priorities. And so I wanted to figure out, like, why do some people seem to get so much more done than everyone else? Why do some companies seem to be so much more successful? And, and so I started reaching out to researchers and asking them, what do we know about those folks that seem so productive? And what the researchers said is, is well, it's, it's true. There are some people who are more productive than others. There, there are clearly people who, who get more done and more important things done. But it's not because they're working harder that they're making more sacrifices or they're chaining themselves to their desks. It's because they think differently than everyone else. They push themselves to think just half an inch deeper about their priorities and how they set their goals, how they self-motivate themselves, how they sharpen their focus so they're not distracted at work. We are out of time. I cannot believe it. And so that means you'll have to come back and hang out with me at another point and talk more about this because it's really important. You're offering such wisdom and strategy for getting things done, you know, to, to move it. That book name is Smarter, Faster, Better. To learn more about Charles Duhigg, please visit charlesduhigg.com. On Facebook, that page is Charles Duhigg. And on Twitter, the handle is the letter C Duhigg. So once again, at C Duhigg. Charles, thank you for, for hanging out with me. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Jason Selk and Charles Duhigg, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and make it a great one. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.